Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Mindy Yuri. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Here at FuturePod, we are always thinking of ways to capture new perspectives and provide mind-stimulating content for our listeners. So we've recently introduced an additional format to complement our traditional mix of interviews, which we're calling the FuturePod Conversations. Today, we have two of our guests returning for a conversation, FuturePod's own Dr. Peter Haywood and Marie Conway. Marie is a Melbourne-based futures practitioner and researcher, and her interview titled The Foresight Switch, recorded in June 2018, is available as Episode 6 on the FuturePod website. Dr. Peter Haywood is, of course, an integral part of the FuturePod team. His interview from February 2018 is titled Deep Inquiry and Dealing with Complexity and is episode number two. I highly recommend people listen to both of those interviews. Welcome to FuturePod Conversations, Marie and Peter. Thanks. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Marie. So Marie has posed a question to Peter and the question is, How can we make our individual and collective foresight capacities real in futures practice and processes? So, Marie, would you like to begin by telling us why did you choose Peter to ask your question of and would you like to explain what is behind your question, please? Sure. I'll I'll do the second part first, explain why, why this question surfaced for me and then why I worked out Peter was the best person to answer it for me. For a long time in my work, in workshop situations, you will have people who who reject the process, who say, this is not real, I can't do it, and I'm not going to do it. So this process of imagining the future, which we all talk about all the time in futures and foresight work, uh, and I, I have always wondered, why is that? Why is that? And um, then I started my PhD and found my way into brain structure and processes around how the brain, the neurological structures and processes in the brain allow us to think about the future, uh, which led me down a wormhole for a while and also began to give me an inkling of why people can't engage or won't engage with foresight processes and practices and that's around uh, the way our brain works it's around openness to experience it's around temporal focus a whole range of activities that that intersect and come together to allow us to imagine possible futures so I thought well how is it that we can use this this understanding in, in practices and processes? And in, in the last chapter of my PhD, I talk about a new conversation framework which tries to design the processes around ways to activate this, this neural process in our brain that lets us open our minds to the future when all those factors intersect. But... I thought, how can we do this in practice? And then the email came through from FuturePod and I thought, who could I ask this question of? 
and um, having Peter as my PhD supervisor for a while and working at Swinburne, I thought he would be the perfect person to help me thread my way through this question and find some sort of answer because I don't think there is a clear answer because we're human beings. But how do you design foresight processes that allow people to accept that imagining the future is real? Thanks, Marie. Um, Yeah, it's a good question. I'll start with my own PhD just to simply say when I when I started my PhD, it was a long time ago, um, I took the sim- what seemed to be the simple notion of how do you move from individual foresight to social foresight, which was a, a statement that Richard Slaughter first asked and I finished up taking as kind of, you know, the theme of my own PhD. And mm-hmm. so my simplistic, initially simplistic thinking was that collective foresight emerged out of individual foresight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we should concentrate on developing foresight in individuals because, you know, why wouldn't we develop foresight in individuals? And if we get enough people to generate individual foresight, then it will follow that we'll have a greater capacity to develop social foresight. Um, yes. Yeah, it's very nice, simple, straightforward. Mm-hmm. And I would now say after um, all my experience, completely wrong. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) And I say wrong in the sense that individual foresight is absolutely necessary but is also insufficient Mm. for us to work together. Um, And I've wrestled with that for quite a long time and I the way I understand it and the way I and this is now this is really how because I've been looking at many of our problems you know long-term problems big problems like climate like equity fairness gender and almost seeing while at the same time there are people tremendously concerned about it I'm also noticing it's really really hard to generate coalitions prepared to sit with the uncertainty for long periods of time and the way I'm now thinking and this is kind of what I want to offer back to you and see what this sounds to you is that the way individuals think is step one so and so firstly we have to you know it comes down to people's both capacity and preparedness to think in ways that are discursive open um creative mm. that kind of thing okay so yeah. that's that's the first part <laughs> but when we then move into a situation where people are doing it together there's two other elements enter the conversation, and these are the ones that I think I gave insufficient consideration to in my PhD. And the next one is the context the conversation is happening, and the third one is the level of trust that is present in that conversation context. And what I mean by that is the most, the easiest place to see social foresight, collective foresight, individuals working to imagine the future is in a very, very constrained context. (laughs) 
So if you sit down with a bunch of university people and you say, right, we want to grow the number of students who come to our university, that's what I call a constrained context. Mm-hmm. You've kind of just taken away all the all the kind of uncertain abstract ideas of what's the purpose of the university and <laughs> you've just simply tried to narrow it down to make it a quite understandable context. And that question creates its own level of trust in the group as to whether they want to talk about it. But if you get that same group of people, the same level of individual foresight capacity, and you say to them, let's have a conversation about what the future purpose of the university should be. Mm -hmm. A different level of trust emerges in the group. A different level of the group's even ability to or will to engage with the question. And it wasn't because they can't do it. It came down that the context, the question, and the level of trust I have that that's a conversation that I trust you or me or us to have it. That's kind of my initial response to how I'm seeing the process before I come back to your specific question about mm. processes and mm. practice. Yeah. I have yeah, I, um, <clears throat> based a lot of my work on Richard Slaughter's social foresight process and it's interesting you say you know, individual foresight is the starting point and essential but insufficient. I hadn't thought of, thought about it like that, but context for me has always been critical. Uh, but I'd not thought about trust in that sort of sense. Yeah, and I think that. The workshop I did, the last workshop I did where a university professor said to me, this isn't real, yeah, we don't want to do it basically, it was a trust thing now looking back in hindsight yeah, because the vice-chancellor was in the room. But also because it was what we were talking about was very challenging to their view of the future. Yeah, yeah. and you would have had experiences, I'm sure, where you <clears throat> worked with a group over time. and repetitive work with a group while it does develop their individual capacity and that's and that's huge the group also becomes more trusting in opening up the context of the question but you can't get there on day one interesting yeah that's a shame (laughs) um so there's two layers to it two levels intersecting I, I'm thinking about when you introduce this process to people or this way of thinking to people who have never done it before or who will accept that we need to think about the future and the process that we need to follow so that they are curious enough to to want to continue to find out more and to and to engage with the process but for me it's the ability of people to to accept reality as not all there is you know their view of reality is their view of reality and that's all there is and 
to be able to say, well, my view of reality is mine, but it's not yours and it's not yours. How can I be open enough to accept your view of reality as mm. something that needs to be considered? Your view of the future is something that needs to be considered. I'm trying to work out how the invisible side of using the future in the present can be made more visible. Yeah, it, again, another thing that I think, again, I'm, this is just this is just beautiful hindsight. I wish I'd known this, you know, 15, 15 or so, 20 years ago, is we say, and again, it's not incorrect to say it, that all futures thinking is a contest of ideas. Mm-hmm. And we open, you know, we, we openly accept that the future is open. Therefore, ideas about the future are open. And it's not the wrong thing to say that it's a contest, but it's not a true contest in the sense that there's a right and wrong and there's a winner and a loser. Mm. I actually don't think contest is quite the right way to think about how we talk about the future because no one has the right idea and, of course, no one has the wrong idea. They have ideas. Mm. And the more abstract, the longer time frame, the more um, the more interconnection in the in the issue, we have to keep the conversation going for longer. Mm. And we actually need to have the conversation in order to have the conversation. And so once again, often in a very constrained environment like a business, people will give you a certain amount of time and think, well, you know, we're, go- we're going to have half a day. We're going to have one day. Mm, mm. We're going to have a two-day workshop. You know, one of my heroes is Adam Kahane. And Adam Kahane, of course, did his futures work or does his futures work in some of the most difficult situations where he goes into you know, countries that have had civil wars and you know, with broken cultures and terrible, tragic histories. And he runs a process that he called in his book Transformational Scenarios. Yes. One of the things Kahane talked about as a necessary part of a transformational scenario is your preparedness to sit in to sit in that process for months at a time. He, he said up to nine months of conversation to generate the levels of trust and the levels of understanding of the context before you can get anywhere. Interesting. Which, of course, for most people working in futures and foresight, that's an impossibility (laughs) because most people are working with organisations who have half a day or a day. Yeah. I mean, my answer, I mean, it's not all bad for us. And, again, to bring it back to your question, I think we, we, (laughs) we have to be satisfied in people's abilities to work their way through processes to understand the context and to, and to, if you like, build the necessary amounts of trust. So it's really the classic of start where the people are yeah. comfortable to be. Because yeah. they know, they know the level of trust that's present and you don't <laughs> if, you're, yes. if you're a parachute consultant. Yeah. And you might be able to offer help to either unpack 
the context of the question or to offer them ways to frame their thinking, but they will be the arbiter of the level of trust that's in the room. Mm. Mm. And so the ability to simply let people be where they are because the beauty of it is if people enjoy the process and get something from the process, then they're more likely to come back and do it again and do it again and do it again. And if the answer is I'm only going to give you, you know, four hours, then the answer is, well, I, I hope it's a good four hours. Yes, it's um, rarely enough four hours. I guess there's a couple of things. One is that I want to make the outcomes of my PhD practical in some way. So this conversation framework that I've developed um, which is based on integral futures. Um, so four different conversations that people have to be able to engage with the future in the way that I'm thinking about. So the first one, obviously, is the conversation with yourself about your assumptions and your beliefs about, in this case, the university and why you believe those things to be true. You know, how could you expand them? I've got a series of questions that I've come up with for each quadrant. And then the collective one is more about culture and how the idea is symbolised in the culture through practices. And so there's a series of questions to challenge that as well. And that's designed around trying to build a level of futures consciousness is what I'm calling it in the in the thesis. A new view about the future and how it can become part of our thinking and the way we are in the present, which sounds a bit well. I'm not quite sure how it sounds actually. And then the right hand side of the the quadrant, so the the lower left is the is the social context in which in this case, all universities exist, and how you can deepen your understanding of that context. But then how you, in the upper right, how you can bring people together in the organisation, in the university, into that space that you were talking about, Peter, you know, a space that can be there for a long time, that can just let people sit in the conversation that's going on rather than having to make this part of the um, strategic planning process, for example. Hmm. So they bring in, so the idea is that people are aware of these four types of conversations that are going on, but the, the one in the upper right is the primary conversation because it's the only context in which people actually physically or virtually get together to have the conversation but they've drawn on the other three conversations that are going on. It's that tetramesh thing that are going on at the same time to inform that discussion in that quadrant. And that's all fine and good, I think, but the trust thing is um, something I hadn't taken into account. And so I, I think I'm not sure how that how that would affect my framework. But I think that's what's really driving me with that this question and now I'm moving into my post-PhD phase, which I want to be different to my pre-PhD time, 
how can I use this conversation? How can I help people to actually or give them a a clue, <laughs> you know, some questions to ask themselves in a, in a reflective conversation as part of a longer process. So don't come to the workshop until you've answered these questions sort of thing. It's like an exam. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm, that's why I think that's why where this question comes from. I mean, I want to know how to put it into my practice. Part of our criteria, I think, that I'm now learning about this kind of work there's a term in game theory called the continuous game. And it's the notion of how can you play a game with the purpose of continuing the game? In other words, ensuring the game doesn't end. And to some extent, I, and I, think, I think our futures conversations on the big questions we face are the classic example of a continuous game. Right, We, yeah. we never want these conversations to end because they can't. We have to we have to stay engaged with it to the to the best of our ability in order to learn what it is we need to understand about the situation and understand about ourselves and to understand about the other, whoever the other is in the room. Yeah. Or the other outside of the room. The number one thing is do not let this process stop. But that's yeah, that that is impossible <laughs> if, if if you want to define it as a as a process. Well, yeah, you know, but all processes have to end, and the answer has to be well, no. The process may have temporarily stopped, but we don't want the process to to sort of end there. It's got to connect to the next conversation and the next conversation. Yeah. You don't necessarily need to do that if it's quite reasonable to constrain the question that you can get a clear answer, you know, yeah, yeah. a final period of time. In other words, there is no benefit in blowing up a group of people to simply say, we want to come here and discuss how to get more students in the room and then to come in and say, well, actually, that's a very narrow question. I think you should have picked, you know, be tackling a, a more abstract, more longer-term question. I mean, if that's the question they want to talk about, let them talk about Yeah. When people start to lean into and become aware of the big questions, I think we have to design processes that somehow, and I'm not clearly sure how we do it, but processes that somehow support this notion of the continuous game. So the continuous conversation. Yeah, because it has to be. I mean, think of, I mean, think of the conversation that you know is going on in the world now about, you know, uh, race relations, and I mean, how long is that? How long's that conversation been going? Mm. Centuries, yeah, mm. quite a few centuries. Mm. And are we going to end that conversation in the next, <laughs> in this generation or this year or no? These are conversations that the point of the conversation is to continue the conversation now. I'm going to draw a distinct line between shouting at someone what you think the answer is <laughs> and actually the genuine exchange of ideas and learning and transformation that happens. Again, I'll, I'll just give you Adam Cahane's perspective. 
where Adam Kahane says the conversations firstly transform how I think about the situation, but then the conversation transforms how I think about you and ultimately transforms my idea about the future that I want with you. Oh, that's interesting. And I've, you know, as I said, I, I've seen it, we've all seen it, that you know, conversations can transform thinking, but they can also transform people's understanding of themselves or their relationship. Yes, yeah. I was just thinking then about a job I'm doing at the moment, which is probably one of the most open organisations, open to the future organisations that I've worked with. It's interesting because the director says nothing is off the table, which I don't believe. <laughs> but but the commitment and the intent is there to to bring the future, thinking about the future into the organisation. So what you've been saying about the continuing conversation and transforming thinking and, yeah, I'm thinking, wow, I think I need to do some professional development. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, again, this, I mean, and these are things that, again, many people do in many job situations. This is not particular skills for futures people, but I also think it's for a lot of our work. I think it's, I think we have to put more and more thought into it. But a lot of this is, is, is really empathetic listening. So the ability to, listen to the other person's argument, position, whatever, that is different to yours mm. to the point where you can, you can explain how the person is thinking and why they're thinking. So it's that classic ability of someone you don't agree with, can you, can you say why, you know, both what they believe and why they believe it such that it's understandable and makes sense? And just that simple exercise of, A, people want to be heard yeah. <laughs> whatever in whatever way they, they feel safe. And then the next step from being heard is for the other people to actually say, yes, I heard you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that ability to simply empathetically re- report, well, you said the following things because you believe the following things. Mm-hmm. Any process of conversation that moves through those levels of depth has the potential to be transformational. Again, Otto Sharma's work in in sort yes. of you know moving down the U works in levels of conversation, and and so. But again, Otto Sharma wasn't the first person to think of that. You know, go back to the old Gestalt theories and and all the organisational development theories around conversation circles and kinds of things, you know, fish bowling and there's, there's a whole lot of approach. Sometimes I think when I was starting out, I was, I was more in, I was more focused on the content of the conversations that were happening. Mm-hmm. And I believe I played sufficient attention to the quality of the conversations. And actually, I think the quality of conversations we have about the future in terms of the care, the listening, the empathy, I actually think that that they're more important in terms of building the capacity of people to to actually sustain futures conversations. 
Yes, yeah. It's the cultural invisible side of the organisation that needs to be made visible in ways that does no harm to anybody. Yeah, I'm just reflecting on my processes. <laughs> I guess because my my processes and my work are constrained context-based, there's often very little time for that sort of conversation that uses empathetic listening. The opportunity, the other side of it, Marie, is that if it is a constrained conversation, then there it's actually easier to practice those conversations because we already have high degrees of trust. In other words, people can demonstrate and practice how to have the conversations in contexts that aren't terribly scary. Yeah. So then you've got some experience when you then really step into the, the really unknown future conversations. So I think starting I think starting in constrained and then practicing to build conversational skills in the group as part of their futures thinking capacity. I now think is that to me takes futures thinking from just a necessary to then we're starting to move towards a sufficient process. If we can actually deploy individual futures thinking in powerful Conversations, conversations that allow transformation of thinking on all parties. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> can I just can I just interrupt with a question which may or may not make sense to you, Marie? Yes. Um, because I went back to listen to your interview that you recorded with FuturePod, the the first mm-hmm. one, and I know from that that you've always been very aware of where you want to work you made some early choices in your career about the way you work and where you wanted to be most effective I think yes to me um, listening to your conversation with Peter now there are some threads there that resonate with that and I think my sense is that you'll be able to use that uh, in the future and work out for yourself where your effectiveness will be in what you call your post-PhD work, which you, yes. you've said you want to be very practical. So I'm hearing that yes. you really want to make a difference. So it's very live. That's um, I've got this big smile on my face because um, that's what I'm doing right now. I want to shift the focus of my work. I really don't want to do scenario work anymore <laughs> in that form that I've been doing it. I really want to move it, I want to move my work into a more cognitive space, into, you know, how how is it that we can think about the future in meaningful ways and embed that thinking into what we do and how we do it every day. Um, and I think, I mean, this conversation has given me, you know, it's made me step back. I can feel myself stepping back and going, okay, there's something else here that I've missed, you know, the trust thing. I mean, I know that's there. I know it's there, but that's something I hadn't made overt in my thinking or my work. But you're right, I'm, I'm about to make a shift. I'm about to make one of those decisions again. Mm, wonderful. So 
I'm thinking that you may have had at least some of your question answered by by Peter in the, in the way the conversation was held. I think it's been quite revealing, Marie, just listening to it. So I'm wondering if it might be a good time to uh, wind up the, the conversation now. Well, yes, I think so, because I have things to think about now. <laughs> so thank you, Peter. You answered my conversation and gave, as you usually do, you answered it, but you didn't answer it, but gave me much to think about. <laughs> uh, wonderful. Peter, you feel as if we've come to a bit of a conclusion? It was really nice having Marie ask the question because it did make me do the reflective work to take stock of what I had learned. And, um, you know, the beauty of, of Marie asking me the question was I've, I've now pulled together a, a temporary level of understanding that I'm not sure I would have had had Marie not asked the question. So I think what I offered, I think Marie in part created Oh, that's lovely. I, yeah, I think that there's a lot to be said for self-reflection at times, isn't there, in a very structured way, yeah. Mm. So thank you very much then, Marie, for asking the question and appreciation to you too, Peter, for going into the conversation so beautifully with Marie. Thank you both. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks to the future pod. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Mendy Yuri saying goodbye for now.